Hi, this is Mark Tressman, former head coach and adjunct professor at the University of Miami School of Law. And you're listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the Football Learning Academy, an online school teaching pro football history. Today's special guest is noted Chicago Bears historian, Jack Silverstein. He's a pro football hall of fame analyst and the Chicago Bears historian for Windy City Gridiron. If you wanna know about Chicago Bears history, Jack is your guy. One item to note with this interview, Jack mentioned that George Hallis' playing career ended in 1929. It was actually 1928. Jack wanted to make sure that we corrected his comment. We will not have a Pro Football History Nugget of the Week as this entire episode is focused on Pro Football History. Now let's get to our interview with Jack Silverstein. I'd like to welcome noted football historian Jack Silverstein to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. How are you doing today, Jack? I'm well, Ken. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for being here. Yes. So let's start talking about the early days of the Chicago Bears. And I actually want to start a little bit before that. So tell me what pro football was like in Chicago heading into the 1920 season, which was the beginning of the American Professional Football Association, which is now the NFL. Definitely. You know, there's not as much attention on Chicago when you talk about early NFL, because a lot of the attention is, and I think rightfully so, on the leagues and on the teams that were coming out of Pennsylvania, out of Ohio. I feel like even Indiana maybe gets a little bit more attention. But when you then look at the 1920 season, where are your stars from? Fritz Pollard from Lane Tech, George Hallis from uh, from Crane, George Trafton is in the area, Patty Driscoll's from Evanston. So there was obviously a great deal of interest in the game, a great deal of talent in the game. Um, you know, George Hallis, who, who we'll be talking about, like I said, played at Crane and then played at University of Illinois. So the game was growing right here. And it, we don't have that one Latrobe story, for example, but there was so much talent and so much richness in that talent that would um, that would take over and, and, and run the league um, in, in many respects. Yeah, I mean, you take a look at that. Like you said, the focus was in Ohio focus was in western pennsylvania and when they were forming what is now the nfl it started as just the teams in ohio and they said well this isn't going to be sustainable let's start expanding it out chicago's a natural choice for the reasons that you mentioned with all the talent that's in that area reaching up into western new york to get buffalo and rochester and you know even in 21 you had tonawanda so there was a lot of talent in those areas and you know, they definitely had to reach out to that if they really wanted this league to be successful. Definitely. And and look at what the look at the origin of the oldest current NFL team. You know, that's the Chicago, Chicago team, the Cardinals. Okay. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was there was the mix up uh, on the initial minutes saying that they were from Wisconsin because they mistook Racine, Racine Avenue here in Chicago for Racine, Wisconsin, which is mm-hmm. a which was a, an understandable error to make, but you look at Chris O'Brien and you, you look at um, you know, what he built and that's goes back to 1899. Our friend Joe Zimbo would remind us. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that respect, you know, the, the NFL very much has its roots in Chicago. 
Now talk to me about the Decatur's Dailies, how they came into being. Definitely. So the Decatur Staleys were like many teams. They were a team that was uh, associated with or, or, or came from a business. In this case, um, A.E. Staley's Starch Company. And uh, early nickname for the Bears when they were the Staley's were the Starch Workers or the Starch Makers. And you would see that the Starch Makers 11. Um, so it was a team that was um, about branding in a way i mean ae staley saw football as an opportunity to create um a company culture and to push his brand and that's very i i'm saying that kind of incredulously because you don't obviously apply that word or that word wasn't around in the 1920s but that is what he was doing and that's why they were called the staley's um it was supposed to be an organization that would help build up physical skills of his workers. And his first team in 1919 was just workers. And that was not making the nut for him. So he and uh, and his associate, Mr. Chamberlain, found young George Hallis, who'd been a star of the Illini, a star of the 1919 Rose Bowl, and brought him in and said, we'd like you to run this team. You can You can work for the company. You can run the team, do whatever you need to do. And um, and George Hallis did it. He was the perfect person to find. And he had an engine in him that was unlike um, anyone, uh, I would say. Uh, I, I view him and Joe Carr as being the two key figures in creating the NFL in the early days. And um, and George Hallis from 1920 and, and even before until he passed away, he, he was just he had this fuel in him. He had this drive in him. You could not have found a perfect person, a better person to take over your company football team. And George Hallis started recruiting. He built this team. And I always look at George Hallis as, you know, the expression, you can't serve two masters. George Hallis had two masters. He had the Chicago Bears and he had the NFL. And he needed both because he never said this explicitly, or at least I've never seen him say this explicitly, but I feel like one of the reasons he founded the NFL was because he had to have teams that could play him so that he could see how good he was. Mm. And that was always my read on George Hallis's interest in sustaining and creating and then in sustaining the NFL was you need competition. I want to be the best. I want my team to be the best. Well, who am I going to play? They got to play somebody. So that was the that was the genesis. I mean, A.E. Staley saw this opportunity to build up his company culture, to build up the skills, to build up the camaraderie, and also to push the name, the Decatur Staley's. And, you know, we saw the same thing with the Packers, the Ac- Acme Packing Company. And um, they, they wouldn't be the last, but they were certainly uh, in a big way the first. Now, you made an important point here is that a lot of people think that Hallis founded the team. He didn't found the team. So when did, what year was it when Hallis came in and took over as the owner? Because I know A.E. Staley started with it, but then when did it transition over to being owned by George Hallis? Yeah, what's interesting is that you could actually think of the Bears as an expansion team, which I, I don't think anybody has ever said that. And I, I was just recently reading and putting a bunch of little pieces together 
um, from a number of different sources. There was a meme that was going around last year that I corrected, or maybe it was earlier this year, that was um, saying that the that the Hallis family or the McCaskey family got the Bears for a hundred dollars, and referring to the hundred dollar starting fee, um, which itself is a matter of dispute. Ken, what's your take on that? No money changed hands, or yeah, I, don't, I, mean, I think they, in the very early days, nobody paid the franchise fees. <laughs> right. They're just trying to stay afloat. Right, right, right. And Hallis had said later that that was um, strictly something that they said for the press to give the league more legitimacy. But even if they did spend $100, it wouldn't have been coming from George Hallis. It would have been coming from A.E. Staley. Right. He founded the team. The team in 1920 was the Decatur Staley's. In 1921, after that first year, and the, the Staley's were excellent, near, nearly won the league championship. Um, after that first year, A.E. Staley famously said to George Hallis, I can tell you're more interested in football than you are, pardon me, in starch. And he said, you know, they had a game uh, at, at what is now Wrigley Field at Cubs Park that obviously performed very well. And he said, there's, you know, there's, there's a better future for football. This is Staley telling Hallis. There's a better future for football in Chicago than there is in Decatur. And you should take the club. And all I ask is that you keep calling it the Staley's for one more year. And they worked out a deal uh, for Staley advertising to be placed in the programs. So technically, though, at that point, George Hallis did not yet own the Bears or own the Staley's and they've been, they've become to be known as the Chicago Staley's uh, reporting of the day actually still called them most frequently the Decatur Staley's, even though they were playing in Chicago. It's, it's more of like a, you know, it's still the New York giants and New York jets, even though they play in New Jersey, more of that sort of thing. So Chicago Staley's has been codified. It doesn't seem like that was really a term that was used at the time, but they had a one year deal for 1921. And after that, they had to essentially fold the team and create a new team. And George Hallis and Dutch Sterneman had to create the entity, the Chicago Bears Football Club. So it wasn't quite just a name change. It was an actually technically a new team and they had to put it to an owner vote. And that is why Guy Chamberlain ended up going to Canton because all the players on the Staley's were free agents. So the Bears, the new Bears, had to sign all of their players. And this got into a really interesting, you know, one of those key, lovely, what if moments in history that we see so often where something could have gone one way and it went another way. In 1921, George Hallis was out, as he always was, to restock the roster. And this was a good roster in 1920, but they came up a little bit short. And he wanted to bring in some more talent. He brought on three players, three Ohio State stars, one of whom was uh, Chick Harley. And Chick Harley's brother, Bill, negotiated a uh, percentage of the gate. So it wasn't quite ownership. It was just percentage of the gate for that 1921 season. Um, without getting too in the weeds, they wanted to get away from that partnership. And the key man who actually came on was Pete Stinkham, who was the, who was like the second guy because Chick Harley ended up only playing one year. So 
they sign this deal and they want to get out of it by toward the end of the season. And then the team dissolves. It's no longer it's no longer a team. They 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 had to reapply to the NFL, what what was about to become the NFL. They had to reapply. And Bill Harley showed up at the meeting and said, I've got this contract. This makes me a partner in this new venture. I need to be a one-third partner with Dutch Sterneman and George Hallis in whatever this new team is. So Hallis and Sterneman and the owners had to call A.E. Staley and find out what was the actual nature of the arrangement that they had. Because they had an arrangement in writing between Staley and Hallis and Sterneman. And they had to call them, find out what the, why A.E. Staley had the foresight to, uh, to ask for um, branding and, and not have the foresight to ask for a piece of the pie going forward. I mean, if he had asked for that, I don't know how they could have said no to that, but he, um, but he didn't do that. And, but Bill Harley did. And Bill Harley was rejected by George Hallis and Dutch Sturdeman and then said, well, I want to apply for a Chicago franchise. So in 1922, in January of 22, you actually had two um, potential teams asking the league to approve their franchise. And in an eight to two vote, the league voted for George Hallis and Dutch Sturdeman. And so they became the Chicago Bears. Bill Harley went on his way and he had a little bit of a, a little bit of a run in Toledo in the league, but obviously nothing like a potential one third partnership. Uh, what's interesting to me about that is that George Hallis, having made a little bit of a mistake in giving the Harleys a little bit of a foothold into the franchise, then tried to get Patty Driscoll over from the Chicago Cardinals, who he had gotten for the 1920 de facto championship game. He tried to get Patty Driscoll, and he was going to do it on the basis that uh, they were going to give him one-third ownership. So it's interesting that George Hallis... For whatever reason, he wasn't a big Harley fan. He loved Patty Driscoll. Clearly, it was Patty Driscoll, one of the you know key members of the Bears for the first three, four decades, uh, uh, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. So, um, so that's interesting to me. But, uh, but yeah, they had to become a new team. So, if you want to say it, technically speaking, 1922, the Chicago Bears were an expansion team. So, if you kind of want to split hairs. Would you say the Chicago Bears are a founding member of the league? Yeah, I would. I would. And because I, you had that connective tissue. I mean, I don't think it was a mistake. I'm, su- I'm surprised the Harleys got two votes. I'd like to know. Do you know who voted for them? I wasn't able to no, I don't find know it. About that. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I think that absolutely the, the Bears are a founding member. And... You know, I mean, I think that more I know it's nice to be able to say that a charter member, but I, I think more broadly, it, it, out of all respect, obviously us, the Cardinals, you know, I would say that the Packers are they came in 1921. I would say that the Giants are they came in 1925. I know that that's stretching it a little bit, but I don't know, those first six years were makeshift and um, in, in a big way. So I would give everybody their due. But no, I would still absolutely call the Bears a charter franchise but yeah if you want to if you want to get you want to get technical with it that was a new organization that they had to reapply for and restart now they were in the same meeting voted the 1921 champion it would have been pretty difficult to vote out the champ and george hallis 
had a way of getting the things that he wanted in any one of his roles, whether as uh, as owner of the Bears or as an owner, you know, one of 10, 12, 15 votes at any point. You know, whatever it was, he, he got what he needed. He got what he wanted. He always did. So, um, so no, I would, I would maintain that the Bears are a charter franchise. No, we're definitely going to dive into whether Hallow's got everything he wanted or not, but that's going to be a little later. But um, let's go back again to the early days, stay there for a little bit. How good of a player was George Hallis? Good. He was good. He was he was very good. He was smart. He was tough. He was fast. He had a knack for the big play. Obviously, he had the 98-yard fumble return uh, with Jim Thorpe hot on his trail all the way down the field. And that was the NFL record for the longest fumble return, certainly. I'm, I don't want to get my facts mixed up. Longest play, maybe, until 1972. Certainly the longest fumble return. I would have to double-check. But... Um, he had a he had a sense of the moment. Um, you know, one of his biggest games was that that Rose Bowl with uh, Illinois, and he wasn't dominant the way that you know, like Fritz Pollard was like the dominant player in 1920. Patty Driscoll dominant. Um, Ed Healy, Pete Stinkham, obviously then Red Grange. The, these guys were dominant game changing forces. I, I've never sensed that George Hallis was that but he was a very good player. He had an iron will. He had a good sense of the moments. He obviously, as player coach, knew the game plan to a T, um, had a great psychological fortitude, a, a very, very good player. I'm not sure how you could say, I don't know if you would really compare him to if I was trying to sort of figure out, I don't know, almost like Anquan Bolden comes to mind in a way because of the strength and the toughness and the longevity and also a guy with who, who made some big plays in his day. You never quite call him the best wide receiver. You know, I did, did George Hallis belong in the 1920s all decade team as an end. I don't know. I mean, it, you could kind of go a few different ways, but, um, but a very, very good player. Like one of those guys you don't have to think about. You don't have to wonder, uh-oh, am I going to get the best out of him today? No, you are. Now, how long did he play before he focused full-time on coaching and running the team? Well, he was coaching from the beginning, um, but he ended his playing career in 1929. So he ran the, the whole first decade of of the league and then and then stepped away from the from the playing. All right. Now we had mentioned before about the 1921 championship. So I want to kind of dive into that a little bit more. I know there's some controversy over that championship. Buffalo has their perspective. Chicago has their perspective. Now Buffalo claims that it was a quote unquote exhibition game that the season was over that this is just going to be an exhibition game, and that is the only reason why Buffalo played that game. The downside to that is I know at some point, I'm not sure exactly when that happened, the league came out and said, okay, December 4th is the official end of the season, the day that they played this game. So, or they played a little bit earlier than that, but Chicago played some games after this one. 
So when we're taking a look at this, one, let's start with, did Chicago think that this was an exhibition game or did they think that this is yet another game within the season and this counts just like any other game would count? I think that, and it is a lot of I think, and I was looking at the papers um, and, and reading a bunch, but in particular, looking at the papers in uh, Indicator, which still really treated the Staley's as their home team, even though they were playing all their games in Chicago and the papers in Buffalo. And I think really it, it comes down to this. George Hallis never gave an inch in anything. And everything was a war. Everything was a fight. Everything was a competition. And you, you wanted to win. There was a winner and there was a loser. And at the end of it, there, one of them was written down as one and one was the other. And you can debate your mom, but like that was that. And George Hallis viewed this game that way. I think what George Hallis did was he said, I'm just going to keep, I'm not going to think about it right now. I'm just going to keep stacking wins. I'm just going to look for, I need he was like, I, I need an opportunity to play Buffalo again. They, they booked that um, a few days after the first game. I need, I need more games overall because this was the problem that he ran into the year before um, with, with Akron. Uh, you know, who, who were the champions? And he didn't get the championship in the first season. It drove him mad. So, you know, the first Bears-Packers game ever was the result of George Hallis needing another win. And that was a huge deal in, in Green Bay. Um I think that George Hallis thought, let's just keep getting as many wins as possible. We got to beat Buffalo. If you don't beat Buffalo that second time, then it, it's all, it doesn't matter. But let's just get as many wins as possible. And I am the force who will get the, get the league to vote it the way I want to vote it. Now, Ken, I know that you have written and you've looked at strength of schedule. And from just a, a football standpoint, you have have laid out that you feel like, you know, Chicago, that the Staley's had the better team. They had the tougher schedule. They were more worthy of that honor. And there are some Buffalo historians as well who, who say the same thing and, and also add that George House was focused on the championship and that um, uh, Frank McNeil, the owner of the Buffalo All-Americans, was focused on, you know, adding some money at, at the end of the season. And he, he booked it in such a, you know, I, I don't want to be rude. It was not the smartest way to book a game where you're going to play one game and then you're going to get on a train, go overnight and, and, and go play in Chicago. So I, I think that it's possible that he thought that McNeil thought this isn't a championship game. The season's over and that Hallis viewed it the other way, but, Here's how the actual reporting went. So November 25th, 1921, the day, uh, this is the uh, Decatur Daily Review and shout out to newspapers.com. Um, headlines, Staley lo Staley's lose chance for world's pro title. Now that's the Decatur paper. I mean, you would think that they were going to, you know, maybe play it up the other way. Like Staley, you know, lose chance is pretty definitive. And, um, and then Four days later, when Hallis gets the game booked, the rematch is announced as Staley's get another crack at pro title. So this is definitely where the mindset in Decatur was. Uh, There's a story December 1st, 1921, that Carl Stork says that the, the December 4th game will determine the title. 
Um, but there seems to be a little bit of a, a mix up here. And I haven't gone through the papers to chart, um, to, to cross check the schedules that I've seen online, Pro Football Reference or Your Story, to see if there's a game missing. Because sometimes, as you well know, there would be exhibition games and there'd be like a question of whether that particular game, and obviously that's what we're talking about, but sometimes there'd be games earlier in the season where there'd be an exhibition and there'd be question in as a matter of record, does this get counted? Does it not? And so that seems a little bit fuzzy, but, um, but Stork said that that game will determine the title. I mean, that's who's, you know, and he, he added this thing that um, it's not going to matter what happens afterwards. Obviously it did matter because the Staley's needed those that at least that one extra win they played two games after that game and they won one and tied one against the Cardinals so they but they needed that win uh the Buffalo Times on December 3rd and and here's where it cuts the other way was already referring to the All-Americans as quote the champions of 1921 the bottom line is it comes down to a vote Mm -hmm. and it's you know I think of you know growing up as a Big Ten fan and I was a Northwestern fan but I still you know, had Big Ten pride. And in 1997, Michigan was the best team in the country. Best team bar none. Undefeated, Heisman Trophy winner, um, took care of business with Washington State in the Rose Bowl. No fluky win like what Nebraska had. But at the end of the year, Nebraska, they get the coaches poll because, you know, the coaches all want to see Tom Osborne go out a winner, retire a winner, and they have to split the title. Well, that's what happens. I mean, in a, in a sport that ends with a vote, whether that's boxing, skating, back in the day, college football, and obviously in the early days of uh, the APFA and the NFL, same deal. So I, I think that George Hallis knew, no matter what he was saying, I think that he knew just keep winning kind of the ultimate who wants it more. You know, I mean, McNeil, did he want it more? Nobody wanted wins more than George Halleck. So I think that he just thought, keep stacking wins. Keep getting games in. It doesn't matter. We'll, we're going to have to hash this out. How many people are going to remember exactly what was said? Or how many people is that is the, is, the, is the passion of that argument going to fade, you know, from December 4th until uh, late January, January 20, I don't remember the date, but it was January of 1922 when they had the vote. You know, is that is that is that energy going to fall by the wayside and and people are just going to vote for us? He played it right. I mean, and McNeil played it wrong. So, you know, I had never heard the term Staley swindle. I I think until like the last 10 years, Mm -hmm. I had never heard the term. I had never I didn't know it was a controversy. We just grew up. Bears have nine championships, period. Or I was born in 81, so so eight championships, and then 85, nine championships. That was it. And you, I'm a numbers guy and a years guy and a stats guy, so you remember the years. They're all listed in different Bears history books that I had growing up. Or, you know, they're nine-time champions in 1921. You know, we don't talk about that. And it's, I, you know, they say, like, history is written by, written by the winners. But I think some history is written by the losers because of the perspective. You know, in Buffalo, yeah, it's the Staley Swindle. In Chicago, it's championship number one. But the thing we think about is the instant replay game. And that was, I'm sure everybody knows this if you're listening to Ken's wonderful show, but just in case, that was the game in 1989, Bears-Packers, where Don Majkowski, Mikowski, excuse me, 
um, fired what would be the game-winning pass to Sterling Sharp, but there was a big review as to whether he had crossed the line of scrimmage, and they reviewed it for a long time. It was at Lambeau. Fans are going, you know, getting real antsy, and they decide um, that the play is is good, and it's a touchdown. And Michael McCaskey had um, had the Bears put an asterisk next to that game in the team media guide that led to the, you know, at the bottom, asterisk instant replay game. Well, no one in Green Bay calls it the instant replay. They probably do derisively. But I just think it's like Raiders fans talk about the tuck rule more than Patriots fans. And, you know, Americans talk about the 72 gold medal game and the controversy there of the, you know, of the next possession um, more than USSR fans, more than, more than, more than Russian basketball fans do. You're always going to talk more about the, the, the robbery, the injustice, you know, where you are the victim and got to give it a name, the instant replay game, the Staley swindle. So to Chicago, no swindle. That's just, that's just good, smart competition. Yeah. Just to put a bow on this championship game, Buffalo had a record of nine, one and two at the end of the season, Chicago was nine, one and one. So they didn't really count ties back then. So both teams were nine and one, but what they did was they said that the second game, if you played more than one game, the second game counted more than the first. And so since Chicago won the second game, they were considered to have the advantage. So however you want to look at it, Buffalo perspective, Chicago perspective, like you said, Chicago won the championship. Right. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Chicago Bears and Chicago Cardinals. What was that rivalry like with both of them being in Chicago? Uh, heated. Um, a little, kind of, kind of Cubs Sox-ish, but I think, I think even more, you know, Cubs Sox, obviously until I was in high school, we had the Crosstown Classic. There was no interleague play. And so it was, it, there was, there was pride and there was identity, but it wasn't quite the same thing, but it, it was, it was similar in the sense that there was from a publicity standpoint, there was a big brother, little brother thing. And it was a North side, South side thing as well. Um, you know, the Cardinals were the first and the second Chicago team wasn't even us. I mean, it was the Chicago Tigers, you know, and here come these bears. Here comes George Hallis from Decatur. What? He's going to say he's the Chicago team. Well, that, that is how it went because again, winning, winning cures all. And we won in 21, they won in 25. And after that, it was, you know, all bears all the time. I mean, the, we have two titles in the thirties. We have the championship loss in 34 when we were undefeated, and we have the four titles in the 40s. We have the championship loss in 42 where we were also undefeated. Um, the Bears and the Cardinals would hook up for an end-of-season game, and it was a big deal. I mean, there were some really uh, key relationships there that were at the center of these games. So, again – you look back at 1920 when the Bears needed, excuse me, when the Staley's needed this one game against Akron, George Hallis broke his own rule, you know, as a, as a leader of the a league, um, that you weren't supposed to sign any players from other teams for a championship game. Well, he, he brought Patty Driscoll over from Chicago, from the Cardinals. And he just did it. 
And then they tried to get Patty Driscoll again. That that deepened that rivalry between Hallis and um, Chris O'Brien. Uh, he he helped them. It's, it's always this thing with Hallis over the years of like, he helps you do something and he takes something. So with the Cardinals, you know, he helps steer the franchise uh, uh, after O'Brien's David Jones. He helps steer it to the Bidwell family. And... And 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 then with the AAFC in 1946, which I, Ken, thank you for all your work on the AAFC. I've learned so much um, from reading you and and from your tweets and just all the anniversary stuff. Um, now there's going to be another team, you know, in Chicago. And so George Hallis, it's said, helped uh, helped the Cardinals gain a better team and he brought help, you know, he guided them to bring Konzelman out to become coach and he just helped them along. Cause he knew the NFL needs to be the, the, the league that survives. And if that's going to happen, we need to knock out this Chicago interloper right here, this Rockets team. And we need to do that by saying, you know what? It's all full. Sorry, everybody. Bears and Cardinals have this on lock and you can't do that if the Cardinals are bad. So it was like, he helped the Cardinals become better. And then once they snuffed out the AAFC, and during that time, Bidwell died. So he didn't have that relationship with um, uh, with his widow and her new husband. And now it's back into the rivalry again. And now it's, you know, now I need to be the only team. And so now he's trying to drive the Cardinals out. And then when it looks like the AFL might come along and potentially – disrupt their uh you know the nfl's rights to getting a st louis team he gets the cardinals to move to st louis i mean it was always something with george hallis where he was always trying to like do right by the bears and then do right by the nfl and if like another nfl team could help him do right by him or the nfl then he did that and then he did the other thing i mean he was he was a competitive competitive person so there was a lot of that um there was a bit, I mean, I still hear about Cardinals fans who are no longer, you know, who stayed with the Cardinals or who root against the Bears or became, you know, my grandfather was heartbroken in 59. And so we became Packers fans because we weren't like screwed Alice and all this. Like it, that was real. There was a real deep rivalry and it was, you know, part of the natural rivalry north side south side that exists today in chicago because you had you know you had the cubs at, at wrigley and you had uh and you had the Sox at comiskey um it, it was it was tough stuff and i i definitely recommend everybody check out joe's where are we I, I have never actually said his name out loud i said zimba earlier zimba 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 hmm. i recommend everyone check out joe's book bears versus cardinals the nfl's oldest rivalry and, and um it was uh it was it was fierce it was real it was tough and um and the bears ultimately were victorious i'm also going to put in a plug he has got a few classes at the football learning academy so make sure you check that out uh to get more not only in that rivalry but on uh, chicago football history that's right that's right all right so this one's going to be a more difficult part of this conversation but uh, i know the nfl wants to forget that this happened um but it didn't the ban of African-American players after the 1933 season. I want to get into how powerful Hallis was at that particular time. 
when we talk about the band, George Preston Marshall's name comes up. He's the reason why the band was put in place. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, we all know how much of a racist Preston Marshall was, but he'd only been an owner of the league for one year. How could he have been powerful enough to implement that ban without somebody like a Hallis in his corner to help champion that? What's what's your thoughts on that? You just summed it up. Um in 2019, I published a piece on Windy City Gridiron, uh, looking at George, pardon me, looking at George Hallis' role in the band. And, and I said the exact same thing you did because, um, so I learned about it in, um, in the video 75 Seasons that the NFL put out in 94. My brother and I watched that just, uh, we wore that tape out, man. I loved, I loved that tape. And they kind of mention it kind of what they do in that movie is they talk about fritz pollard and then it's kind of like and then at some point and it's kind of fuzzy and then yada 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 kenny washington and the person i didn't know about was joe lillard that i never knew the name joe lillard or ray kemp it was never it was never taught to me and I never read anywhere that there were black players in the NFL who were kicked out of the league. So it didn't start from nothing. I mean, they were ejected, you know, they were George Joe Lillard was the best player on the Cardinals. And I think probably would have been a hall of famer. I mean, it's like he was, he was a dynamic point scoring dominant force. Um, Ray Kemp, just a, a very good lineman. I, I, I get the sense that he was solid. Um, I, I don't want to speak one way or another if Mr. Kemp's family comes upon this, but I mean, he seems like a, a, like he was like a very good player. And they were ejected from the league. Um, that number, 12 years, 1934 to 1945, I had never, I had never heard it like that. It was just like, oops, we don't know what happened. And then bop, 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 Kenny Washington. And isn't George Preston Marshall awful? Like that was how the NFL presented it. But like you said, George Preston Marshall was a he was he was just in. Now he had a great deal of influence, no question about it. He was the reason in '33 that they added the uh, the two divisions so that you could create an actual playoff. He was the person who said at the highest level, "Why are we following college football's rules?" Why don't we just do what we want to do and have our own rules? And I'm talking about things on the field. Um, so he was really instrumental in reshaping the league. And he was a great marketer, um, successful businessman. He was kind of this next generation because, you know, Hallis is a football guy and all the early guys were bookies. And then, and then Marshall was the first guy. He was in multiple sports, you know, owned teams in different, you know, like a basketball team and, um just he had just had like a little bit more going on he had a sense of showmanship and he thought this is entertainment we need to entertain so you need a playoff you need to get the he's the reason that the the ball you know on a play out of bounds you no longer had to line up smashed up against the sideline they created hash marks get him back to the middle of the field you know that was george preston marshall and he and george house you know george house is head of the rules committee and they were friends and George House paid him a very serious compliment. He said he was 
don't remember the exact word he used, but he he compared him to CC Pyle. And CC Pyle is one of the few guys who, you know, really made George Halas's head turn and, you know, made him think like, oh gosh, there there's some people in this game who have some real serious ideas about player empowerment and about cuts of the business and all that. So George Halas respected George Preston Marshall. They were friends. And I don't think anything in that league happened without George Halas's consent. And if it did, I mean, he was fighting that kicking and screaming. Um, he helped choose every commissioner basically until Pete Rozelle. And the only reason he didn't help Pete Rozelle was because he, that was such a contentious fight um, that he kind of saved his capital for helping push the Cardinals to St. Louis when the whole AFL NFL thing was starting. And so he didn't vote for Pete Rozelle, but he didn't vote against Pete Rozelle because he wanted to still be able to steer people toward what he really wanted, which was to get a team out of Chicago so that they could own the market. And I bring that up because it's another example of George Hallis being a four-dimensional thinker and having this great will, great vision. I find it impossible to believe that we're going to sit here and assign George Hallis with um, with this vast influence and, and, and also this incredible sense of finding talent and, and fighting for every player. And like I said, he made the rules and then he broke the rules. Like it, he broke his own rule for Patty Driscoll. He broke his own rule for Red Grange. So he wasn't opposed to rule breaking. And he got what he wanted. And he had more influence than anyone. So I find it hard to believe then to think that, well, he just wasn't able to override George Preston Marshall. Or like the, the, the story in 1940 that after Kenny Washington came out of UCLA, you know, the, the NFL now tells the story that. Well, George Hallis kept Kenny Marsh, uh, sorry, Kenny Washington in town uh, and tried to figure out a way to sign him, and he just couldn't. And that's a story Kenny Washington told, and maybe that's what George Hallis told Kenny Washington. But again, I, I just I just find it really hard to believe. Like, what are if we're saying that George Hallis got what he wanted, he had the best vision, he saw the moves, uh, he was the power player of power players. Why are we then going to say, but there was nothing he could do about the ban? I mean, I think the only reason that you would say that is because you don't want to believe it. And the fact is, is that, yeah, the NFL has their, their boogeyman in George Preston Marshall. And you know what? It's a family show. F George Preston Marshall. I mean, as I say, racist for even the 30s. But he wasn't alone. The Bears didn't have any black players before the ban. The Giants, the Mara family didn't have any black players before the ban, the Packers and Curly Lambeau didn't have any black players before the ban. Um, the black players in the league were predominantly in smaller markets. And this was always the story that when black players uh, ran up against this, the, this white um, ownership class in the NFL that was running the NFL and is still running the NFL, um, they had to go elsewhere. They had to go to small market teams. They had to go to these other leagues, the AAFC or later the AFL or Canadian football. So it was always like you had to go somewhere other than the Bears, the Packers, the Giants, the Eagles. Now, the last two black players in the NFL were Ray Kemp 
who was on the Pittsburgh Pirates, who became the Steelers, Rooney family, and um, and Joe Lillard, who was on the Cardinals, Bidwell family. Well, look, the Rooney still own the Steelers. The Bidwells still own the Cardinals. The Hallises, by virtue of the McCaskies, still own the Bears. The Packers don't have an owner. Um, and the Mars still own the Giants. I mean, 50, 50%. But, you know, it, it's these long-running histories. And it all ties back and it all goes back to the earliest days of the league. So, to me, you know, George House went on the record a few times. I say on the record. I mean, when people interviewed him. And um, and he gave two primary reasons that there weren't any black players in the league for 12 years. One was he said that maybe the game didn't appeal to them. And two was he said maybe they weren't good enough. Now, I mean, these are like asinine, like so easy to puncture excuses. These, these don't make any sense. The game didn't appeal to them. Black players are starring in college. You know, Ozzie Simmons in the Big Ten. They're starring in the, in the Great Lakes League. Where which Hallis knew very well. Um, they're dominating. Kenny Washington was the best player in college football in 1939. I mean, the best. And went undrafted. Uh, it's just, it, it's just, it's impossible to think that George Hallis looked at these players and said, oh, they're not good enough or, oh, this doesn't, they don't really care for the game or they've decided, you know, Kenny Washington won the Douglas Fairbanks award. Um, and the guys who won it, there were, let's see, of the eight winners eligible. I'm reading, reading my old, old tweet, my own old tweet. So I just want to get the information right. Of the eight winners eligible for an NFL draft, only one went undrafted, Kenny Washington. Six were first round picks. Four went number one overall. So you've got this award precursor to the Heisman and four of the winners, six of the winners are first round picks. Four of them are number one overall. Kenny Washington is undrafted. Um, it's preposterous. I mean, there's this great story of his final college game against USC and they took him off the field for the final 15 seconds. And Woody Strode and, and reporters of the day describe a standing ovation, the likes of which they've never seen. People in the stands crying. Kenny Washington walking off the field, a hero of heroes. It's ridiculous. I mean, Kenny Washington would be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, Kenny Washington would be one of the most famous football players in the history of the league. And he gets reduced to this, he broke the barrier, which I can't stand, broke the color barrier. Like, no, white racist people did a bad thing and then decided to be a little less bad. That's what happened. You know, Kenny Washington still owns the Rams franchise record for the longest rush. I mean, his knees were torn up. And he was still performing at an admirable level. I mean, finishing as a league leader in yards per carry. I mean, Kenny Washington should be, I mean, Sammy Baugh, Sid Luckman, Red Grange, Kenny Washington. I mean, like that kind of Kenny Washington Bart Starr, Johnny Yu. I mean, he should be that, that level. So the idea, and that's a big part of what gets me hot about this, is that it's racist, it's deeply unfair, and it's just crummy for 
sports fans. You as sports fans, you want to see all the best. You want to see the best players doing the best thing, you know, the best man for the job, the best woman for the job doing the best thing. And to think that someone who got a standing ovation walking off the field in 1939 didn't get to play in the NFL until 1946 and that you're not hearing his name every single week of an NFL season, every single year. Think about like the records he would have set and then what players would have broken those records. I mean, it's maddening. And you think about the Bears winning 73 to nothing. He did it without Kenny Washington. You know, it calls into question some of these great Bears because how good would George McAfee be if Kenny Washington was in the NFL? I mean, we kind of know because they were all Americans the same year. So one play McAfee, yeah, all right, he would still be he would still be all right. But um, you know, would I know the name Ray Nolting if Kevin Kenny Washington was allowed to play? Would I know the name Ray, you know, Shooter McLean? Would I know the name Gary Family? Well, I'm a freak, so I probably would know those names. But like, um, you know, like would they be known? Would George Musso be in the Hall of Fame if you get what I'm saying? So it's like, it's frustrating. It's this, it, it becomes this incomplete record of the game. I mean, the NFL in many respects is an incomplete record of pro football. And that bothers me because I like completion and, and comprehensiveness and fairness. And I, I just want to see the best of the best. So, yeah, I mean, Hallis is a complicated figure because he's got so many parts. And one of those parts is he participated in the ban of banning of black players for 12 years. He, the, the bears were all white. Um, it, it, and now, and now this is here, here's, here's where someone's going to get on, on me. Yes. I know we drafted George Taliaferro. Yes. I know about Willie thrower. Yes. I know about Eddie Mason. Yes. I know about the Sayers and Piccolo uh, uh, bunk mates. So, did George Hallis come around to things? Did he start to change? Or was he, you know, was he cowardly and not, you know, I mean, but the fact, but, but, but don't use that as an out. Don't use that as a way to excuse what he did. Cause he did what he did. He did the things. Now the things that we don't know, we, we, he didn't write it in his autobiography. This is why, you know, so we don't have that one statement. We have statements like that from Fritz Pollard. We have statements, um, you know, statements from Kenny Washington, but we don't have that one George Hallis statement, but we don't really need it. He, he did those things. I mean, you can just look at the rosters. You know, we've talked about Fritz Pollard had said that after that 1920 game that the Bears wouldn't schedule games against Pollard. And then you and I were like looking for all the games. And there was a famous game, uh, 1925, um, where it was billed as Red Grange versus Fritz Pollard. But like, did George Hallis not book Fritz Pollard 21, 22, 23, 24? Like, yeah, that's probable. And he could have been clearly he didn't. Um, you know, I don't think it's, uh, it's not good enough. It's not good enough to just say George Preston Marshall and call it a day. And it's not just Hallis. The Mara family has a part of this. The Bidwell family has a part of this. The Rooney family has a part of this. The Lambeau legacy has a part of this. Bert Bell has a part of this. Joe Carr has a part of this. So I'm not saying it's just Alice. It's everybody. They all did it. They all did it together. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree with you on that, that uh, you hear some mea culpas going on now of people saying, yeah, I mean, we shouldn't have done it back then. It's like, yeah, you shouldn't have, but that just still doesn't excuse the fact that you did do it. So well, you did it and, it and it ripples, it ripples into today because when, um, when white leaders in the NFL restrict positions or restrict opportunities for black players, black coaches, black GMs and ownership. I mean, that's the big one. I mean, we start to look at like how certain families got their teams. Like it was, it was pretty easy for the, for, for the Mara family to get the giants in 1925. Like, why wasn't it that easy for Fritz Pollard? Like, why didn't they try to find a way to give Fritz Pollard a franchise? And think what that would have done. Um, you know, why wasn't it, why wasn't Duke Slater in the inaugural class of the Hall of Fame? Why wasn't Fritz Pollard in the inaugural class of the Hall of Fame? So there's stuff like that. But there's stuff like, you know, Kenny Washington, in, in a sense, was a quarterback. I mean, he was known for his long passing. So he played, you know, halfback and he, and he passed. Um, but when you restrict those opportunities, that has a huge ripple effect. And it, it ripples all the way to right now. We're only starting to get to a point where um, race is much less of a factor at quarterback uh, than it used to be. And, but it's still, but it still factors in, but we're certainly not there at coach. We're not there at, at GM, we're not there at the executive level. And obviously then the last one, ownership, and a very important one, we're not there at a press level either. So these things come from Hallis and not only Hallis, but again, if you're if you're gonna say George Hallis was the most powerful person in the NFL, then you have to take the good with the bad. If you're gonna say that George Hallis was always someone who got his way, who found a way to convince everyone, who knew the angles, then you have to accept that it was not just the whoop, well, where are the where are the black players on the Bears? I don't know who, who like it's intentional. He did a thing. He did it. It's intentional. It's part of his legacy. And salute to George McCaskey, who clearly has been pushing the Bears in an intentional way, in a different direction um, over the past five years, I would say. And that's awesome. That's great. But it's part of George Hallis's legacy. It can't be removed. Let's uh let's move on to the 1940s and Clark Shaughnessy coming to the team. Yeah. Team switches to the T formation, things take off. Shaughnessy not only implements the T formation on offense, but gets in on the defense to how you can stop it for anybody else who comes into it. So talk to me about his overall impact on the offensive and defensive sides of the ball to propel those bears because like you had mentioned before, they won in 1940, they won in 1941, they won in 1943, they won in 1946. So that's pretty dominant. So talk to me about Sha Shaughnessy's impact. Juggernaut. Um, created created juggernaut. I mean, one of the great, the greatest innovators in sports. I always find that um that if the greatest innovators don't always make the best head coaches. And that's why they have trouble getting into various halls of halls of fame. I mean, you look at, you look at the NBA and, you know, guys like um, Mike D'Antoni and Don Nelson and Paul Westhead, you're like, they're, they're, 
they don't always get their due alongside Phil Jackson and Pat Riley because it's the innovators who maybe are a little too into innovation. Um, but when it works, it works. And he changed football. First, he changed it on the offensive side of the ball. And then he helped develop uh, he helped develop defenses and schemes that would stop those offenses that he created. And you see it, um, you know, you see it obviously with the Rams in, in the 50s. I mentioned the Bears, you know, Sammy Baugh, they, they, they put it in in Washington. Sammy Baugh said that taking over the T formation was the hardest thing that he had had to do. And that's Sammy Baugh. So, yeah, I mean, look at, look, say, say no more than 73 to nothing. I mean, and then the 1941 team, even better than the 40 team. And then the 42 team, even, again, even better. And just, you know, but for the one loss, you're looking at, what would have been the second three-peat? Shout out to the Packers. Um, and uh, and but more importantly, you're looking at the the first undefeated champ. The you know the 34 Bears would have been, or the 42 Bears would have been. We didn't get it. But um, yeah, I mean, Shaughnessy changed everything. I mean, he is he's one of those lightning bolt moments in history, and spread it throughout college because at at Stanford, um, I mean, he the the, the the, the offshoot, the big bang of, of, of the Shaughnessy offense. I mean, he wasn't the obviously the, the first innovator. And, you know, the Bears had Ralph Jones a decade earlier who was a great innovator. But there was, there was nothing like what Shaughnessy was cooking up. He was one of those, um, you know, I was thinking of the picture of uh, Matt Nagy with all the plays on his, on his wall. And that's the kind of thing where the, the shared trait isn't necessarily the only thing that matters um you know or or different traits i think about how um you know robert de niro was a method actor and marlon brando had all of his lines written on cue cards right off camera so that he could just read them like memorize them in the moment and he didn't but they both the performance is on screen you know so different strokes but um but clark shaughnessy had a suitcase a briefcase that he would carry around with plays and he like the playbook and the bible and you know, it got later where he was the defensive coordinator of the Bears. And um, I think it was I think it was Bill George. It might have been Richie Pettibone who said this. I think it was Bill George who had talked about how things were getting a little too complicated and that George Allen was able to come in as the replacement for Clark Shaughnessy and focus a little bit higher level. And George Allen, obviously, you know, a prepare, you know, preparation, 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 but you do it a little bit differently and, you know, it works a little bit better. There's an important element of uh, a new voice, but yeah, I mean, Clark Shaughnessy, again, he wasn't even a member of the bears staff in 1940. I mean, he was a consultant and you can kind of get a read on who's who in NFL history by whether or not George Hallis trusted you. And whether or not George Hallis thought you were someone to be to be heard and be empowered, and Clark Shaughnessy clearly was that. So, oh yeah, he he changed that whole organization. That changed the NFL. It changed college football. And then it went over to the defensive side. Changed the defensive scheme. I mean, he's Clark Judge had us do the uh, you know who's your next senior. I said Clark Shaughnessy got to be because um, he's someone who that coach contributor combination was was made for. Obviously, Don Coryell and. Don Coyall's in, and, and that's wonderful. So Clark Shaughnessy up next. Fingers crossed.
Yeah. So you and I are both on the same page as far as Shaughnessy belonging in the Hall of Fame. So why is he not there? I mean, the case seems to be pretty overwhelming. So what's holding him back? Well, I think part of it is the categorization. And when he was coming up in the 1970s, he was getting mentioned. But when you talk about him, even if even if the categorization lines up perfectly, which now it does because of coach contributor, when you talk about him, how do you really talk about him? You talk about 1940, but he wasn't even on the Bears. So then you're talking about his time when he was with the Bears. Well, he was defensive coordinator, but you don't think defensive coordinator when you think Clark Shaughnessy, even though he had this huge impact on defense. So then you think about, oh, well, he, you know, installed the Rams offense, then they won a championship, but they won a championship after he left. So it's kind of it's kind of that like tricky combination of like what lane does he fit into? And he he had a little bit of traction in the 70s. Um, and then you know, we've seen voting trends starting with 1963, which was the first year, which is part of the issue. You know, that they, they had they had to make up all those years if if the Hall of Fame existed in you know, 63, but you didn't have to backlog everybody, then yeah, maybe Clark Shaughnessy then does get in um, more quickly. We're, we're doing a really interesting, um, I don't know. Are you on the voting for, uh, for Kirk's? You are right. Yes, I am. So, so, so my colleague, Kirk Buckner, Canada's finest, uh, has started um, a group and we're doing a really interesting exercise, which is we are re-voting the Pro Football Hall of Fame as if it started in 1946. So not from the beginning, but if it started in 1946, after World War II, what would the Pro Football Hall of Fame look like? We're focusing on players, but now we're into contributors and we're into coaches. And so I'm very interested to see when Clark Shaughnessy comes up on our ballot. I, I have a feeling we're going to elect him electing him at all would be electing him faster. But, um, but yeah, I mean, why hasn't he, you know, a few years ago, I wrote a story for Windy City Gridiron where it was the first time that I ever did a full ballot. And I looked at the 2019 ballot from the nominees list and ran it all the way down semis finals and my class and my class of 2019 was, see if I remember all five, it was, uh, Tony Gonzalez, Ed Reed, Sterling Sharp, Brian Mitchell, second all-time in scrimmage yards, uh, in total yards, excuse me, not scrimmage, obviously, total yards, and Clark Shaughnessy. As recently as 2019, Clark Shaughnessy was on the modern era list. I mean, that's a categorization problem. No one in their right mind. I got on TV and said, yeah, let's vote Clark Shaughnessy over Champ Bailey. No one's going to say that. So there's a categorization problem. There is from a logistical voting standpoint, but then there's also a categorization problem in, in your mind, because like I said, you think Clark Shaughnessy, you think 1940, he wasn't with the bears. He was with Stanford pro football Hall of fame. You know, he didn't win that championship with the Rams, but they won after because of him, but they, they went with him. Uh, then he's defensive coordinator for a long time. Very good at that, but you don't think defense. So I'm repeating myself, but I think that's the issue. And it's, it's going to take people. It's, it's going to take someone just saying, this is it. 
Like now it's, you've got to put him in and let's move on to other conversation. It's going to take a champion in that room. Um, so we'll see if uh, such champion emerges. Now we talked about the forties, talked about the passing attack of the T formation, but then you started seeing a shift to going to more of a running focused attack. When did that occur and, and why did they make that change? You mean specifically with the bears? Correct. Yeah, this is something that I've thought about a lot lately. And I think that part of it is narrative based and it's rooted in how Chicago likes to see ourselves, you know, because we like to see ourselves as tough grinders, blue collar, but the bears were the passing team or, or, or one of the few passing teams, obviously Washington, obviously green Bay, but you know, the bears were one of the great passing attacks for the first four decades, all the way to 56. Ed Brown and Harlan Hill were one of the great combination, you know, deep ball combinations in the league. And you're talking 1956. That's still pre-Super Bowl, but that's post-war by a long shot. You know, it's it's not the dark ages anymore of the of the NFL. I mean, you're you're talking like Johnny Unitas, you know, I mean, you're talking some players um who maybe have some modern comps. And yeah, I think that if the Bears had won that title in 56, maybe we would have still thought of ourselves a little bit more as a, as a passing team, because it gets to, you know, 63 and we win that title. And that is a defensive title. Um, and with great running, with great running backs and, you know, we have Johnny Morris, but the, the, the go-to receiver on that team is Mike Dicka. So, you know, your, your key receiver is a tight end. We've got um, Rick Saris. We've got Willie Gallimore, rest in peace. We've got um, Joe Marconi. And we've got that defense, 10.3 points allowed per game. Um, you know, the names. I mentioned Pettibone. I mentioned Bill George. I mentioned Doug Atkins. Um, you know, the greatest secondary in the history of the Bears uh, with Rosie Taylor and uh, – and Benny McRae and Davey Witzel and J.C. Caroline, uh, who was a backup at that point, and Joe Farnado and just all these players, um, Stan Jones, just defense. And we won a defensive battle in the 63 title game, 14 to 10, intercepted a YA title five times, you know, league MVP. You know, that wasn't, you know, our one offensive touchdown um, or one of our offensive touchdowns was a, was a QB sneak from Billy Wade. So I sort of think that if we had won in 56, maybe we would have like, maybe that like instinct to care more about the downfield passing attack and the quarterback play would have sustained us. I mean, George Blanda, I read at one point, I can't find the quote, but I read at one point that George Blanda felt that George Hallis was already kind of missing the boat on QBs. And that was why he was able to then go to the AFL and, explode and he was starting to have a good year in 54 and then got hurt but then he went to the afl obviously with houston and just you know tore it up mvps championships and look we 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 lost um we lost bobby lane and uh we lost johnny lujak i mean we had we had the heir apparent and we had him right there and it just we we started to slowly as an organization get further and further away i think of it as like waves like um uh, like an EKG 
And every time it goes up, it goes up a little bit lower and then a little bit lower and then a little bit lower. So it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, well, Joey Sturdivant from the quarterback days of when that was a different position, Patty Driscoll, and then, uh, you know, Masterson and Molesworth, and then Luckman up, you know, Luckman and then uh, Charlie uh, O'Rourke for his one year. And then it's, you know, Lou Jack and Lane, and then it dips down a little bit. And then it's uh, Brad Kowski, and then it dips down a little bit. And then, you know, Blanda is up a little. And then Harlan, you know, Eddie Brown, and then it's down. And then Billy Wade, Rudy Bukic, now it's down a little bit more. Now Bobby Douglas, now it's down a little bit more. And Vince Evans, who I think got a raw deal, but now it's down a little bit more. McMahon, now you get to McMahon. And he's now he's kind of like the modern prototype of what Bears fans think a quarterback is. Like he's a winner. You know, he, he just wins. Just, you know, but like he had a nice deep ball. Obviously, he was tough as hell, but was he was he was never well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I, I found an article um from eighty-seven, I think, calling him the best quarterback in the league. But I mean, that was still on the basis of his winning percentage, which had a lot to do with that defense with Walter, with that offensive line, and then with Neil Anderson. So it just, by the time you get to to my era and the 90s, you know, Eric Kramer is still our franchise leader in um, passing touchdowns and passing yards uh, in a single season. 29-38-38. Can you imagine being Virginia McCaskey and turning 100, and your franchise has never had a 4,000-yard passer, but they've had a 1,000-yard quarterback rusher <laughs> on your Can you imagine? Yeah. So – now we just kind of are afflicted. I mean, now we don't know what a good quarterback is supposed to be. We have no idea what it's supposed to look like. We don't know. We're not even sure we want one. Could we do without a quarterback? Could we play without one? Could we just, so, I mean, we're, we've got a lot of trauma. We're, we're about to have a third first round fingers crossed that we don't have to do this, but we might have to have a third first round QB. It's a mess. We're a mess. I'm glad we're talking about history because the present is terrible. <laughs> I wish that weren't the case. I feel bad raising my kids as Bears fans. My own daughter said, I said, Where's, come watch the Bears. And she went, the Bears? Like I said, like, I have to. <laughs> yeah, she said her exact words were the Bears. Yuck. I was like, that is really painful for me to hear. But also, should I be doing this to you? Like, should I be making you sit down with me and put on these terrible, you know, you wear your jersey with pride. What pride? They don't know any pride. This is awful. It sucks. <laughs> I hate this. I really do, Ken. It really it drives me insane that like I'm a historian and I love it, but I'm also a fan and I want something good for our team. We don't even have the all-time wins record anymore. We don't even have the like you know how long it's going to take to become the all-time leader in 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 wins against the Packers again. We have to sweep them like eight, like I think four or five years in a row now. We haven't swept them since 2007. <laughs> Get the blood right going here. Yeah. Um, let's just talk about a couple of other uh, items here. One is, I know we've talked in the past about Paul Patterson. So talk to yeah. me about him and his impact on scouting. Yeah, Paul Patterson, and I've been trying to get this story done. Uh, it's just it's just tricky. So I'll give you the scoop, uh, and uh, and I appreciate you not running with it, or you teased it a little bit, but um, the hell with it. Uh, so I was reading an article. Uh, I was trying to get find the exact article about the first time that Sayers and Piccolo were roommates, and it was an article in 1968, 
and it was talking about how Benny McRae became a team captain. Captains before that were um, uh, were Buckus and Mike Pyle, and I think Bob Watoska. Um, and there was a conversation on the Bears about wanting to have a black player be a captain. And what Benny McRae said, he was like, I was a captain, just like all the other captains, but I was kind of also the captain for the black players. And the idea came from the, the people who approached him were Muggs Hallis, George Ellis Jr., uh, Jim Dooley, head coach of the team at the time, and Paul Patterson. And I went, who the heck is Paul Patterson? Because I haven't heard of everybody, but the people who I haven't heard of in Bears history are usually like fringe bench players or, you know, assistants, assistants, assistant coaches or things like that. Who is this person who was making a decision with the chairman of the board, uh, you know, the son of the owner and the, and the head coach? Paul Patterson starred at U of I with Buddy Young and he played in Chicago. He played on the Chicago Hornets, which was the rebranded Chicago Rockets of the AFC. And then he found his way, and I've been doing as much as I can to fill in the pieces, but uh, but he found his way to the organization, I suspect, through Buddy Young, because Gail Sayers talked about how Buddy Young and Buddy Young was his first agent. Buddy Young and Paul Patterson were friends. I think that that's how it happened. I haven't been able to confirm that, and the Bears haven't told me that. Um, George McCaskey sent just a, a, a nice but um, a comment, just like a Paul Patterson, good man kind of a thing. Um, but they, but they don't have uh, like that level of record of, of when he came or, or of how he came. But I, I, I think it's probably, it makes sense that it'd be the Buddy Young, uh, bit. And Paul Patterson had a few different titles, uh, on his run with the Bears and one was Scout. And that would make him one of the first black scouts in the NFL or in, or, or NFL, AFL. And, um, you know, he doesn't, he, he's not on the level of, Lloyd Wells or Bill Nunn um, or uh, or Tank Younger, um, but he was doing actual scouting. And I talked to uh, the dean, Don Pearson, the dean of Chicago Bears football, um, and uh, I interviewed Mr. Pearson about that. And he said that he didn't remember he did he he didn't remember any specific player who you could like attribute to Paul Patterson. But you know, there's articles about Paul Patterson attending James Harris's pro day, for example, like with a number of other scouts. And this was a time where the NFL was starting to bring in more black players. And to do that, they were going to HBCUs and you needed a black scout who could talk to black coaches and talk to black players and talk to black families. And it was different than the, you know, than, than white players and white coaches and white scouts. And it was definitely still falling on, on racial lines and still does in many respects. So Paul Patterson was the, as far as I can tell, and I need like one final confirmation from the Bears, but 99% sure Paul Patterson was the first black employee of the Chicago Bears. And what he did was, along with being a scout, he was called the team liaison between management and the black players. So if you needed to talk to someone, um, you could go, if you had a problem, you could go talk to Paul Patterson and it wouldn't ruin your reputation with management, with the Hallis family. Um, the, the great Jim Osborne sat down with me or I called him and, and we spoke about this and he said, yeah, he, there were some times where he was getting frustrated about something or, you know, just if you needed to talk to someone and, and you didn't want to be labeled like combative, 
um, as a black player in a white organization, you could talk to Paul Patterson. And Paul Patterson, uh, it looks like, possibly still had a role as late as 1978 or 1979, but probably what happened, and the record's a little bit spotty, was that he was cleared out by Jim Finks when Jim Finks arrived. And Jim Finks cleared everybody out, so it wasn't just Paul Patterson. But I think that um, Paul Patterson's impact and legacy is um, one of these key figures who helped um, help black players succeed and be comfortable and have a place and which speaks to the problems of all these white power players in the NFL. But, um, but yeah, Paul Patterson, a little bit lost to history. Jim Osborne thanked me for even writing about him, which again, I haven't yet, but I will on Windy City Gridiron. And, um, you know, the Bears did Don Pearson and Dan Pompey, another wonderful, you know, great writer who's been in contact with mine when they did their um, team encyclopedia, their hundredth year anniversary, which I don't have, which I should have, but, um, but I don't think he was included because Dan wasn't, didn't know who he was. And a lot of people who I talked to didn't know who Paul Patterson was. I mean, I got a lot of, a lot of people who I thought would didn't. Um, so um, he would help players find jobs. He would connect them into social life in Chicago. He and his wife were like deeply involved in all sorts of social activities and organizations. And um, so uh, passed away in uh, 1982, I believe, young age, poor went out for Paul Patterson. Backing off of what you just said about people that the general public don't know much about, talk to me about some of the players from the earlier days, let's just say pre-1960, in Chicago yeah. Bears history that people need to know about and why? Players, Bears players pre-1960 people need to know about. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, well, I would say that two are the Sternerman brothers, Dutch and Joey. Um, Dutch Sternerman being the co-founder of the Chicago Bears, as we said. I mean, he and George Hales put up the money to create the Chicago Bears football club and George House had to buy him out and nearly lost the team to Dutch Sternerman in 1933 and Dutch Sternerman's little brother Joey was um, a tailback a halfback and played quarterback and they, they they all did everything you know they kicked you know like the fridge said when I kick and pass we'll have more fun like that was football in the 1920s so uh, you know I would say that the Sternerman brothers would be ones and uh, Joey Sternerman played in that famous controversial Taylorville and Carlinsville game, which I didn't realize until yesterday, was the same day as the first Bears-Packers game, November 27, 1921. So I thought that was nice. Um, so I put those two up there. Um, you know, one that jumped out at me was Ray Nolting, and I mentioned him earlier. He was a halfback, and he gets kind of buried because the Bears had so many great halfbacks in the 40s with, um, obviously, with uh, McAfee, uh, with Hugh Gallinar, Gallarno, with family Eddie, I'm sorry about all the names, with Ray McLean. Um, but Ray Nolting was someone who came up in one of those uh, Richard Whittingham books where people were like talking, you know how like, you know how like if you, I think about this a lot with Carnell Lake. When I talk about the best safeties or if you talk to 1997 Jack, you're like, who are the best safeties in the NFL? I'd be like, oh, well, Leroy Butler, Carnell Lake. He'd probably be the second person I would name. And I'd be like, Steve Atwater, and then probably Darren Woods. 
And shout out to my guy, Jeff, who's pushing Tim McDonald right now. And I think we'll find out next week if Tim McDonald is sent to the senior abyss or not. But uh, but Carnell Lake would be someone. And you know you don't hear about Carnell Lake at all now. But if you were reading the paper at the time or looking at all pros, all pro at corner and safety, everybody, Carnell Lake, uh, he's a name who would come up. So I was looking at these at these books and people would be like, well, the Bears of like Luckman and Bulldog Turner and Ray Nolting. And I was like, whoa, hold the phone, like Ray Nolting. Like, because you look at like those Bears teams and like Family Eddie led the NFL in rushing touchdowns in 1942 with eight. And, you know, Gal- Galarno had, uh, I maybe he was a rushing champ. I know Bill, Asma- Bill Asmansky, the dentist, was a rushing champ in 1939. And so like they have like key differentiators. And there's nothing on Nolting, but like his name came up a few times. I don't have anything more to tell your listeners about Ray Nolting other than I need to learn more about Ray Nolting. So I guess that tells you all you need to know. Uh, other guys, pre-1960. Well, certainly Harlan Hill, certainly Ed Brown. Um, great, great deep ball connection. Certainly everyone needs to know about Willie Thrower. They need to know about Eddie Macon, um, for sure. You know, an interesting one was Charlie O'Rourke, who... Uh, in 2017, when Mitch Trubisky was a rookie, and they were trying to see if Mitch Trubisky was going to pass Jim McMahon and Kyle Orton for the Bears' rookie touchdown passing uh, record, which they held at nine. But then I was like, and some of my peers at uh, what do you see the Gridiron, especially Sam Householder, we were like, what about this guy Charlie O'Rourke who threw for 11 touchdowns in 1942, and it looked like he was a rookie. So we actually got the Bears, or I actually got the Bears, to change their record book to add Charlie O'Rourke as the actual uh, rookie passing touchdown leader. Um, so he might he might be one. Um, who else? You know, the fact is, is that I'm going in the weeds because you and I are historians, and so we live in the weeds. But most people don't. And I would just say, learn more about Bronco Nagurski. Learn more about Red Graves. Learn more about George Trafton. Learn more about um, Beanie Feathers, uh, you know, first thousand yard back in NFL history. Learn learn more about a lot of these guys. I mean, there's a lot of interesting, a lot of interesting names, a lot of interesting stories. Uh, so I would say, but, you know, learn more about Kenny Washington. Learn more about Joe Lillard, Ray Kemp, Woody Strode. I would say that for sure. Learn more about Duke Slater, who, by the way, when George Hallis wrote out his all-time eleven. In like 1941, 42, somewhere in there, put Duke Slater right there as, as you know, because they said the, the 11s because he played both ways. So the teams were called the 11s. You know this. I'm just telling, I don't know, you know, I'm telling the other people. I'm not telling you guys. Not trying to school you here. All right. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, he had Duke Slater on that team. And then Duke Slater doesn't get inducted into the Hall of Fame until 2020, which was outrageous. But um, yeah, learn more about Duke Slater, and um, and definitely learn more about Kenny Washington and and old Bears. There are a lot of them, so dive in wherever you want to start. Jack, thank you for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. Appreciate it. That's all that we have for this episode. I hope that you enjoyed our interview with Jack Silverstein. Stay tuned to our social media channels to stay up to date on our episodes. You can find the links at the Football Learning Academy website at www.football-learning-academy.com. Not only will you find the links to our social media channels and a listing of all podcast episodes, but you'll find other fascinating interviews and classes. 
And an important note, a portion of all proceeds generated at the Football Learning Academy go to help retired players in need. That website again is www.football-learning-academy.com. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. Thank you.